Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 103, SE Linux, recorded July 14th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. This week, we're going to talk about the black art that is security-enhanced Linux. Um, and like most things on this show, we're going to give a uh, largely ignorant, uh, half-hearted overview of something incredibly technical. So uh, get ready for that. Something like that. But we have bacon this week, so it's okay. <laughs> and of course, those two voices, familiar to you by now, who need no introduction, but it says so in the script that I have to do it. So I'm going to do it. Mr. Chris Neves, the command line godfather. Hi, Christopher. Howdy, howdy. How's everyone doing this weekend? Excellent, excellent. And the uh, the end of his yang, the light side to the darkness of the force, the gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our awesome world domination podcast, also known as Everyday Linux. Yes. Yes, yes. And we'll have one Sorry, that sounded better in my head that. before it came out of my <laughs> mouth. And, uh, Most things do. I find that, that that's my life. Most things sound better. So I, I did some uh, just vanity searching the other day. Last night, a couple of days, I don't remember. Uh, I went, I opened up Chrome in incognito mode so I wouldn't be logged on to anything because, you know, Google likes to personalize search results. Um, and I just typed Linux podcast into Google. And for, I'm going to say the first six or eight pages, we were on every page. That kind of made me feel now, good. Did, huh. you, did you go through like uh, Proxify or something like that just so it wasn't like using your IP against you or anything? No, I didn't do that. Okay. And then I ty okay. typed Everyday Linux Podcast, so specifically for us, and I found lots and lots of reviews out there I didn't know people would put out there. Um, you guys are, are generally very complimentary to us. Who knew? Um, I like it. Forum posts and things like that, and we were on a ton of – it's probably just a factor of having been around for a while, but there's all these um, uh, podcast – aggregation sites directories that i didn't know dozens of them that i didn't know existed and we were on every one of them that i found so that was kind of cool hey i've got a great show topic let's go and read all of our reviews and stuff <laughs> it'll be a short show uh speaking well, of short you know, shows all the websites that mention us i i'm determined to get this one under, one under two hours tonight that's my goal let's do it we've really been drifting like crazy guys it's uh, there's like a, a switch flip somewhere along like episode 80 and we just from there just consistently got longer and longer and longer and longer and i, I don't know that it's really a problem but it's definitely a thing <laughs> well yeah, you're, you're, I, you're, the, um, you're the lead guy I, you're supposed I would to like rein to us back in when we go too far off topic come on now mark you're slacking. I, but when we have no topics, it's hard to know when we've gone off topic. Uh, that's okay. the hard thing. So, <laughs> anyway. Touche. Uh, I saw Despicable Me 2 yesterday uh, with my kids. I can say that because that makes me feel okay. But I would have seen it without my kids. Uh, good movie. Better than the first one, I thought. Not as mean-spirited for, you know, one of the things that bothered me about the first one, it was, it was four young kids. And it was very... Mean spirit. I get. It. I mean, the name is Despicable Me. It's about a despicable guy and his journey. Uh, but this one, uh, even the bad guy, really wasn't all that bad. And the the minions were a lot more in it. It was very funny. I laughed uh, most of the way through it. The only thing that ruined it for me, and I mean ruined it, was 
sitting about three seats to my left was one of those color commentator people who had a oh. comment. Not not she didn't just laugh out loud. She did laugh really loud, but she commented on every frame of the film. She had to tell us what was going loudly in full voice. Oh, that's funny. See what he did there? He was, oh, he poked him in the eye. That's, oh, look at that. The whole movie. I would have left. I would have got up and left personally. Well, I was there with my three kids and two of their friends, so that really wasn't an option. But I, re- well, I, I wanted to poke her in the eye, frankly. Uh, I want yeah. <laughs> visions of doing evil things to her ran through my head. It was a terrible experience. Totally ruined the experience for me. Don't do that, people. And and she had obviously it's raised her kids fun. that way because she was there with two kids and her husband, and they were all discussing the movie among themselves at full volume. So uh, you In know, the middle it, of the movie. yeah, that's uh-huh. the way she does things, and so her kids think that's normal. Uh, it was just terrible. It was just terrible. Don't do it. Don't do it, people. Yes, you have the right to say whatever you want, but you have a duty to not spread duty. (laughs) (laughs) How about duty attitude? And at this point, I want to focus on Seth's camera. Those of you watching the live stream, I want you to notice that to Seth's left, to to, to stage right, there is a nail holding up a hammer. That's about as meta as you can get. A hammer nailed to the wall. Somebody commented recently that there's this nail, this empty nail that's behind Seth every week. Somebody commented that he needed to hang something up, so he did. He hung up a hammer. Well done, Seth. Well done. Thank you. The gooey kid will do anything for the audience. So, um, yeah, and, you know, and just in case somebody is new here, this is not my house. I am at in one of the offices of my church, and it's just a random it's just a random thing sticking out of the wall, and I had never noticed it till he pointed it out. And so I looked around, and I thought, well, there's a hammer. Let me see what I can do with that. And uh, I got it to work. That's awesome. Thank just, you. I Thank challenge you. you to leave it until next week and see if it stays. <laughs> All week. That would be funny. I do accept your challenge. <laughs> See, people said that, that, that Seth and Mark should have some challenges. Seth was just given a challenge and accepted it. Um, I just want to uh, say very quickly, I had homemade bacon dinner for, for dinner tonight, and you didn't. Oh, That's all I have you to say. Suck. That is, and that is why everybody points out every flaw you make, because we <laughs> hate you with a passion. <laughs> The passion of a thousand suns. <laughs> so I, I had we I made this bacon a while back. It's been in the freezer, and and for some reason we had bought regular store bought bacon a couple of times, and and so I did what I always do with bacon. I got I got like six slices of bacon, but this I forgot. This was my bacon. This actually had meat in it, and so three slices in, I was full. Three slices of this bacon is like a hamburger. So it's a uh, <laughs> awesomeness. I had homemade bacon. And you didn't. Oh, I'll have store-bought bacon tonight for dinner because we're having breakfast for dinner. Yeah. So did we. My, my, da- my 10-year-old daughter, I'm very proud of her, made pancakes and bacon and cheesy grits all by herself there with minimal supervision. We had to help her with the timing. Okay, put this in first, turn this on. But she did everything else all by herself. I was very proud of her. That is cool. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Um. 
just a teaching my my 12 year old how to do laundry that's mm-hmm. even funner by the way i was uh uh, looking into while we're on the this topic of cured meats, I, I will begin it in the in the near future, but don't look for uh, any commentary on it because it takes a long time. I'm going to make my own prosciutto. I'm going to take a leg of pig. I'm going to cure it, but it takes a, a year, twelve to eighteen months. So wow. don't expect feedback immediately on that. But I'm going to have this chunk of meat hanging in my basement. For the next year, it's fascinating. I learned about the process, um, like the Virginia cured ham, which is the Texas version. Of the, excuse me, the U.S. version of prosciutto. They took the same process and did it here. You start. Um, you need cold for the first like forty or to sixty days uh, to make sure you basically kill all the bad stuff. Then once the the moisture's been drawn out and it's cured, the aging process actually you need heat. You need it to go through eighty and ninety and hundred degree days to develop the flavors. I didn't know that. I thought you had to keep it refrigerated the whole time. But no, to get that good prosciutto flavor, it has to go through a wide range of temperatures over a long period of time. Who knew? Huh. Huh. Very interesting. Well, I'll be. And what I did know, but but maybe not is it is not common knowledge, is you don't cook it. You eat it raw from that point. You just cut it right off the pig and eat it because essentially you have chemically cooked it. Interesting stuff. So, if you ever had some prosciutto wrapped around an asparagus stalk at a at a fancy party, that was raw pit pork you were eating. Dun dun dun! Unclean, <laughs> unclean. <laughs> but you just good. offended all of our Jewish and Muslim listeners. There's not much they agree on, Mark, but uh, <laughs> they all agree that we are evil now. <laughs> I had a friend of mine brought me some Serrano ham which is a South American Mexican prosciutto, basically, and it's served raw and sliced super thin. It was, like, it was amazing. It's amazing. And that's what got me on this kick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my own ham. I'm, I'm going to do it in, you know, 12 to 18 months. You'll have to take no, I, I think you need to make a cool. prosciutto-making podcast <laughs> and chronicle <laughs> the entire process. That would well, be a long, boring day podcast. Four. Day 390. Still hanging. <laughs> well, they'd be short. Today, they'd be very short. Temperature reached then. 48 degrees <laughs> Celsius. <right. laughs> I, I think a blog post would do for that one. So, okay, moving right along. Seth now has positive things to say about Walmart. Surprise gasp. Gah. <gasps> well, you know, I brought the ire of the Element Opie Nation down upon them last week when I talked about um, the way they were trying to screw me over with my rim that they lost it turns out they didn't lose it they just broke the thing and so i found it driving home and then i showed it to them and they said oh okay you've got the proof buy a new one and we'll replace it so i drove to tyler to the dealership and paid dealership prices and then i took them the invoice and they paid me back so you know it, it was harder than it used to be but once i had the proof they uh they did honor their screw up so you know i'll I'll tell you back a few of the the mean-spirited things i said about them last week okay there you go walmart thank you so they did finally do do right by you just took a little hard uh, a little hard took a little longer and was a little harder than you wanted it to be yeah and i'm I'm basically out the gas for a round trip to tyler so eh, you know no big deal i got to go to wing stop anyway so (laughs) it's worth it 
Yeah, I saw that post. How do I love the let me count the ways? Actually, there's just eight in this combo plate. So eight ways. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that that was my attempt at humor. Um, it worked. I, I chuckled slightly. It well, was. I mean, that that was a chuckle post. So, cool. yeah, it, it, I don't know if Whereas, it was a full chuckle. It was more of a, <laughs> you know, in, in kind of yeah. sort of a. See, that back there, that was a guffaw act. But the other <laughs> post was kind of a chuckle. So there you go. So. The, what you hope for is the snort, though. If you get a snort, you know you've really done well. Right. I guess I never knew that. Thank you for telling me that a snort means you did a good joke. Yes. Actually, I think it's... Especially if they're drinking something when they snort, then that's awesome <laughs> for everybody involved. <laughs> when you get there the you mi- When milk comes out the nose, that's when it's perfect. <laughs> I think... Uh, I can't remember. It's It's one of the the places where it's cold, like one of the Scandinavian countries, where snorting is considered an erotic thing like instead when you don't moan during sex you snort that was a, one of really? those weird trivia things well and see I, I could be a porn god there <laughs> and so speaking of bad weather uh chris how did your uh how did you hold up i saw your your uh your facebook post about that oh yeah um, we had some pretty wild weather this last week um so bad, in fact, that my cars ended up with almost ten thousand dollars worth of damage from hail wow. and wind. Yeah, the the hail came down. They were about half dollar size hail chunks. With I think the I don't remember how fast the winds were blowing, but it was hitting the house and the car so hard that I actually had to be in the center of the house to even talk to somebody either in person or on the phone because of the noise driven by the hail. Um, I don't wow. know how much damage is done to the house yet, but yeah, I think we're we're just short of ten thousand for the cars. That's when you get those guys like vultures going door to door with their Bob's Roofing business cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. I mean, anytime you have a hailstorm, you see that sort of stuff, and also you start seeing used car lots having huge sales, hail damage sales, ninety nine percent off, <laughs> something like that. But yeah, I just when the adjuster came, he I, I didn't know adjusters worked on Sunday. Did anyone else know that? Um. Can they make a lot me? more money when they work on yeah. Sunday? Of course they do. Well, it just surprised me. I didn't think anybody works on Sunday. But yeah, the adjuster called me up at like nine o'clock saying, Hey, I'm in t- I'm in I'm within five minutes of your place. Meet me out front so we can check take a look at your car. And it was just surprised with how bad the damage was when when he started calculating it all up and he showed us his calculations and everything. It was like, wow. I, the the hood on my car is gone. They're yeah. they're gonna replace the whole thing. So it's just wow. I was yeah, stuck in a sure hail event once in my car, and not only is it loud and scary, but you're just sitting there watching. Oh, there's thirty dollars. Oh, there's fifty dollars. <laughs> oh, there's a hundred dollars. And there's nothing you yep. can do about it. My wife, when yeah, she was, you know I think, in high school, was in a really bad hailstorm in a car that broke out the windshield. So they had wow. broken glass in their lap and were dodging hailstones after that. Wow, that's intense. Yeah. yeah, I didn't lose any windows, surprisingly enough. But um, the I'm surprised. I'm almost. I'm really shocked that I didn't lose the side mirrors because they were completely bashed. Um, and Doddle, there's some pictures of the cars and the back of the house on my on my wife's Facebook page. I'll be putting them up on my Google Plus page later. So look for those if you want to enjoy the fun and damage. Yeah, people talk about the tornadoes in Texas, but it's really it's the hailstorms and the thunderstorms that that do the most damage. Every spring oh. and fall, you can count on 
baseball-sized hail falling somewhere in the state. Yep. Well, they were forecasting baseball to softball-sized hail for us, so getting uh, getting away with only half dollars, I'm okay with that. One of the worst events I remember in my life was on Cinco de Mayo weekend, uh, which, if you don't speak Spanish, is May 5th, and it's a big holiday. Uh, you know, lots of bars across the country celebrated, but in Texas, which has a lot of uh, actual Mexican culture, it's it's a big deal. There's festivals and and big outdoor events, and uh, great fruit size hail fell on a uh, an area where there was an outdoor event and uh, killed people uh, because they yeah. just, there wasn't where they no could joke. go. I mean, when you're in a tent, no that doesn't matter. Um, so anyway, there you go. That's your cheery news of the week. So let's talk about Woo-hoo! yeah. Oh, let's sorry. talk about hailstones killing people. Um, let's talk about web servers. Web servers are usually where you find lots of Linux stuff. Go, Seth. Go. Well, um, I had not heard of this, but the but NGIX, which is an open source uh, web server that was released, and their goal was to kind of be the number two web server and surpass IIS and challenge Apache for domination of the interwebs. Um, well, they kind of got up to a point where they about tied, but you know, um, IIS is making kind of a comeback on the web as Microsoft rolls out their Azure cloud service. And, you know, the link will be in the show notes, but it kind of gives the percentage. Um, apparently, Sun still has a very tiny percentage of servers. And, of course, Google, you know, a lot of Google Docs places out there, um, they are actually pretty decent in the server market. There's like Apache um, and then there's the rest of the web servers right. total less than half the market. So, um, I mean, Mark, I know how much you love numbers. And if you want to, I'll go into some of these numbers. But I actually learned about NGIX whenever and I came across this story. I, I just found out about X is how that's pronounced. X. X. Uh, okay. When the, a website I was using running on X crashed and the page came up. Sorry, this Nginx, Nginx page isn't working. And I was like, what is that? So I went and Googled Nginx. And, and uh, so that was the first I'd heard of, it, heard of it. So, yeah, it's quietly taking over. It's uh, If I remember correctly, it's a BSD license. So it's uh, m- more business friendly. Uh, the Apache license right. is also very business friendly. Uh, but it's it's definitely more so than the GPL license. Yeah, but it is in a dogfight trying to hold on to second place because, uh, like I say, has more businesses go into um, cloud, uh, move more of their infrastructure to the cloud. A lot of them are doing that on Microsoft's Azure, Azure, Azure. A-Z-U-R-E, Azure platform. And so IIS is kind of making a comeback. It's actually kind of coming back up a little bit, at least according to the article. Um so, and, you know, IIS did get a lot better after Microsoft started drinking their own Kool-Aid. Yeah. I remember it was, what, how many years ago now? Seven or eight, whenever people posted. Um, it was after they the, bought Hotmail. Because Hotmail yeah. was built on Apache servers. Then Microsoft bought it and kept running on Apache servers. And somebody posted some logs. So, look, look Microsoft uses Apache. And so then they made a big public thing. All right, well, we're converting all that now. And then suddenly IIS got a lot better. Yeah, because when they converted it, oh my gosh, it went the well, I mean, that was one of the many times it went to crap after they bought it. But um the, I remember that time painfully so. Um yes, I am a pre Microsoft hotmail people um person, so that's how come I speak evil of Microsoft in the context of hotmail. 
So IIS, in case you don't know, stands for Internet Information Server, and it's Microsoft's web server platform. And it's it's web servers. It's a web server for people who know how to run Windows servers. Um, yeah. It's it's for somebody who knows how to run a web server. It's an ungodly beast that nobody would ever want to touch. But if you know how to use Windows servers and you just want to put one of them on the web, IIS is is golden for that because it, it it presents itself to you in a very Windowsy way, and your Active Directory policies all work. And so that's why it's popular. It's because these yeah. people that are Windows enterprises go, oh, look, I can stick this machine on the internet. Great. But anybody who actually cares about good web performance would never use IIS. Yeah. Yeah, Apache's the king uh, when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. And Nginx yeah, is apparently uh, really, really fast and scalable, uh, and it's it's a big up-and-comer. We'll, we'll have to watch that one. Uh, and then moving yeah, right along, <laughs> the U.S. government... That they took a big banhammer approach to uh, to clearing malware. They shredded the hardware. There you go. Problem solved. Wow. That works. Yeah, and actually, yeah, they had to. Uh, they weren't able to destroy all of the hardware because they ran out of budget to replace it. Um, guys, you're just going to have to read this story. It is just simply. It's too funny. You know, it, it's funny because of what they did, but it's sad because it's my tax dollars at work. And because yeah. of them, I can't fund as many welfare recipients. Um, but it's just it's hilarious the things they do because a couple of machines might have got infected with some malware. They physically destroyed not just the computers, but the monitors, the mice and the keyboards physically destroyed them to clear up the malware infection because the ps2 mouse is a well-known uh uh, port of entry for viruses come on oh yeah i think somebody just wanted to get rid of some old hardware and this was an excuse i think that's how i read that story no mark you're talking about government managing (laughs) management bureaucracies they spent a million dollars to do this a million and a half actually I believe it. I mean, I can believe that they thought this was the best policy. I honestly believe that. Oh, my gosh. You mean you detected it and you weren't sure? You think it was a false positive, but you don't know? Oh, my. We have to destroy everything. And uh, it's just funny. Take the time, guys, and read this story because it is hilarious. So, sorry, Dowell. I have to throw in my commentary. That's all I have. And. It said that the they were stopped in their tracks before they destroyed another $3 million worth of equipment. Their, their plan was thwarted by somebody with a brain cell who went, hey, maybe, guys, this isn't the right way to go. I, I, I picture uh, Tech Sergeant Chen on Galaxy Quest calling up to the con and going, um, guys... They're saying the engine, um, she can't take any more of this. It's going to blow up. Just thought you should know. So that same guy goes, guys, maybe we shouldn't be blowing up computers. They're saying it's a bad idea. Anyway. Kind of a waste. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how are we? How are we going to pay for these? Oh wait, pay for them? Uh oh. So uh, I guess this is where the government sequester um, actually helped us out here. Uh, so in well, last week we talked about the Steam summer sale as hoping to uh, save. Steam, well, it's happening. Yes. Lots of yeah, discounts Chris. on lots of games. It, um, 
this is like oh the the article was written that you're quoting from was written on day two um but we're on day four actually right now and some of them are getting so heavily discounted that you almost have to buy them at the prices so um, uh, so chris for people who aren't familiar with the concept tell them how the summer sale works well, the summer sale—it's basically the Steam client, the the people that make sure that Steam, you know, the the I'm not, I'm not sure how they get okays to sell <laughs> there these some of these things at such a deep discount, but uh, Steam will offer different games at different discounts throughout the the time of the summer sale, which is July 11th through the 22nd. And it's the and more they sell, the the bigger the discount. Isn't that how it works? Not really. Um, they just, most people wait, you know, after the Christmas sale, most people will wait to buy games until after, uh, until the summer sale because of these prices are so heavily discounted. Um, for example, you can pick up Portal 2, the, the new one from that new version of, from Valve. It retails at $20. It's coming out for $4.99. Um, that's a, a pretty seventy five percent discount, and that that's just one uh, one of them that I picked off the page. Um, Fallout New Vegas is two dollars and forty nine cents. Um, they're they're just extreme discounts. Uh, so this is the time if you're a, a PC gamer or a console gamer that moves is wanting to move to a PC gaming market. Now is the time to get into Steam. Because you probably get the games you're playing now at a, fr- a, a major fraction of the price um, than what you'd pay for them in stores. So, Chris, you know, we talked about before the um, lack of kind of good quality recent games on their Linux platform. How is this shaping up for that? Are there are any good games out there for Linux? Or there are a few, um, a few of the games that are that have been you know they've been ported over to the linux um ethos system are discounted as well um but they're not again not all of them are you know triple a titles or new triple a titles i guess would be the better way of putting that out um like there's left for dead 2 which is one of my favorite little you know shoot the dead zombies in the face type games um it's right. normally 20 bucks the linux version is 10 bucks so you know, it's a fifty percent discount. So this is also a good time where, if you're a Linux guy looking for some some good games that you know you can get through Steam, here's a good way to do it. You can. They also have like the Half Life series. That's at a deep discount right now as well. Um, I saw it for. I, I got it. It was on the day one sale, and it was like ten dollars for the whole series of Half Life. So from the ver- original release. Until the last one that just the last episode of the the last one that came out was ten bucks. Um, it's like normally a seventy five dollar purchase, and it was ten dollars. So wow. when you see prices like that, you just yeah, and that's a Linux friendly game. So not only is that a good PC game when it came out, it's still a good P- a good PC game that can run on Linux as well. Yeah, that's the thing about video games, and and we see that a lot in uh, the like the old eight bit games that are still hanging around. If it's a good game, it doesn't matter if it's a modern game. Sure, there are better yeah. games than Legend of Zelda, but people still like playing Legend of Zelda, and you know, and I, it's the I same played, with these guys. I, I played Legend of Zelda yesterday, so <laughs> <See>? <laughs> it was it was in a ROM, but I still played it. But of course, you legally own the product already. So that's why oh, yeah, you're able to yeah. get the ROM. I've, I've probably bought six copies of Zelda by now, 
the original <laughs> Zelda, the gold box one. Right. I probably bought six different boxes. So I think I can have a ROM after that. I remember the story. Seth never lived with us in college, but he might as well have because he was there all the time. I remember going right. off to college, uh, to class one day at like, you know, it was an eight o'clock class. So I left the house at 730. Seth was sitting in my living room playing Zelda. I uh, uh, went straight from class to work that day, closed, came back at about midnight. Seth is still sitting in my living room playing Legend of Zelda. I go to bed, get up about six the next morning. Seth is still sitting in my living room playing Legend of Zelda. Yeah, that sounds slight, about right. It's only a slight exaggeration, <laughs> but um, meaning you got up to go to the bathroom a couple of times. <laughs> No, I, I think eat. I think I went home during the night, if I remember correctly. Okay. Well, by the time I came back, got up, you were back. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, that's the, it's an addictive game, and so yeah. you know, uh, Walking Dead and, and these games that are on sale, people like to say, well, they're not, they're you know, the AAA, the new titles. So what? People still like them, and at you know, six bucks, dude, go get it. Yeah, it, it can't hurt. I mean, even it, it'll even even if you don't play the games that often, just by purchasing them with the Linux client will show the Valve company that there are uh, there is a market for Linux games through Steam. So keep right. pushing the developers to to get it to us, and we'll keep buying them. And and so uh, on a slightly related topic, you know, people uh, still like things that they like. Uh, regardless of what the market says. And and for a long time, we've been told that there's not a market for the netbook anymore. Companies have pretty much stopped making them because they said there's no market for them. Well, it turns out there is a market for them. They're just buying Chromebooks now. <laughs> yeah, it is the, um, let me see, how did the, how did they say it here? Chrome has sap, has snagged 20 to 25 percent of the u.s market for laptops that cost less than 300 dollars. so um you know i mean that's a pretty good market share of uh and there, there's a lot of under 300 dollars laptops out there you can actually get a pretty decent laptop for 300 dollars um and you know and i've seen the chromebooks down under 200 um so yeah chromebooks are there and they're growing up in market share and i wish that there was a better way to determine market share than um, what is it net statistics does because I, I just I can't believe that they're right all the time. So yeah, the Chromebook is growing. It is one of the most popular laptops uh, on Amazon. Um, you know, and of course Amazon isn't the number one retailer of electronics, but it is a large one. And if you're the number one laptop there, then you know what's to say that you're probably not high up in other places as well that don't release their statistics like that you know people who uh, if you look at the, the the pc industry and i'm going to lump tablets and everything all into in the same thing there it's a lot like the automobile industry was in the, in america uh in the 30s 40s and 50s so uh so post-war right late 40s all these GIs are coming back. They've got money in their pocket. They're manufacturing, going crazy, and they're buying a car. And, and people had to convince them they had to buy a car every year or two. Uh, and then they saturated the market. Everybody who wanted a car had a car. Everybody who could afford to buy a car every year was buying a car every year. And then they couldn't, they couldn't sell on me. So, so they started doing weird things like putting fins on the 57 Bel Air. Didn't do anything. <laughs> it just made it look futuristic, made people want to buy it. Right. 
Um, and, and the PC industry is exactly the same way. So in the, the, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, there was this thing called a PC that was really expensive. Um, and then it got to become a commodity thing. People could get them. Anybody who wanted one had one. And then they had to convince you that you needed to buy a new one every couple of years. So they started putting fins on, literally putting fins on them. Right, going back to the old days, and and putting LED lights in them, and and um, you know, and then they started just stacking cores on it. But the fact is, the hardware outstripped our need twenty years ago. I mean, you, in terms of need, and and that you're seeing that now, right? So the Chromebook is essentially a, a night, a late '90s, early uh, 2000 model computer. To, in terms yeah, of what it that. can do, so that's where that's where kind of where our need stopped. And they kept growing and growing, and people kept buying them. But and eventually, we just kind of realized, eh, we don't need fins. I don't need to buy a new car every year. Uh, I don't need to buy a new computer. I don't need to upgrade my graphics card. So now, this whole industry, just like the you know, the automo- automobile industry, had to find a way to survive. Uh, the PC industry is in the same way, and they're all blaming everybody else. They're blaming Microsoft for Windows Eight, like Windows Eight ever sold a computer. I mean, nobody has bought a computer to buy a, a copy of Windows. I, I just yeah, I, I don't do. believe that they, they the people say that sure to get Vista they had to upgrade and so they bought hardware no no they were going to upgrade anyway and the new software came with it um, yep. and so you know this is not Windows problem this is not that tablets are sapping the market it's just people have what they need sorry that was my 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 right wing uh, capitalist rant there <laughs> just a little bit um, and while we're on the subject of Android malware. See, not all the transitions can be good. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there is, um, you know, we talked about uh, a week or two ago the flaw in Android and how they sign apps that with, um, and there was a proof of concept that showed how malware could kind of take over your system, alter code, but not change the signature so it would still appeal, appear real to the underlying OS. Well, um, Google released a patch that fixed it. And this is just kind of talking about how, at least in the Android market, because it's so wide open, you know, Google has released the patch, but they've got to send that to all the different manufacturers so they can test it out and make sure it works on all the different versions there are of uh, Android out in the wild. And then they, in turn, once they get it done, they have to send it to the carrier, AT&T, Verizon, or whatever, so they can implement it and push it out. And so even though there has been a fix that has been released, the fix is not necessarily available for your model of Android. And it apparently, you know, it's one of those things, it's been around for a while and it's still in the current version. So just because you have 4.2 doesn't necessarily mean you're safe. Um, but, it, and um, the article, which again will be in the show notes, just kind of talks about how, you know, it, it just under, it's not really, you know, I, I think it does a good job of not just slamming Android and say, oh, you should buy an Apple because closed system, blah, blah, blah. But it just, it talks about this is the state of malware in the Android marketplace. And uh, in this particular instance, the diversity of the Android system is kind of making it harder to get the patch out because, you know, if Apple releases a patch, well, 
Apple sells one model iPhone uh, and you know and there's only like a couple of models from the late ones in there and then when they release it it goes out uh, boom you're done whereas Android you know they don't really make the devices um, so you know it has to go through Samsung or HTC or Motorola which you know is Google now but and then it has to go to AT&T Verizon or whatever and get pushed out through there so it's just one of those things to be aware Again, when it comes to security, the greatest defense and also the greatest liability is what's in your head. Right. Um, you know, if you're trusting your phone or your computer device to protect you and keep you safe and that you don't have to think about it, I don't care whether you're running Apple, BSD, Linux, Unix, or whatever you're just an open target that's going to do something stupid. Um, so just be aware. And, you know, you're not going to drive in downtown any major city, uh, come up to a store, leave the car running and the door open and walk in and shop for 30 minutes. You're at least going to turn off the car, roll up the windows and lock the door. And, you know, don't leave a thousand dollars sitting in the passenger seat open. You're at least going to take some basic steps. And anyway, there's my uh, little security rant for the day. So I'm going to put on my uh, industrialist pig dog hat. For a moment and say, say I'm a AT&T. What reason do I have to push out a software update? I am in two businesses. I am in the business of selling hardware. I want you to buy a new phone. And I'm in the business right. of selling bandwidth. I want you to consume bandwidth that I can charge you for. Now, if I push out an update, that defeats both of those purposes. A, you don't have to buy a new phone anymore because you've got an update. And B, I am sucking up a ton of bandwidth that I can't charge you for. It's got to be a free update now, uh, and it's clogging my network. And because I'm pushing out this update to my millions of users, my network is bandwidth is going to suffer. My phones aren't going to work well. I'm going to make my customers angry, all for the sake of updating a phone that I don't want you to to update anyway. Why would I ever do that? Okay. Uh, number one. This is a current bug that affects current versions of Android. So if you buy a new phone, you're still going to have the same problem. And then number two, no, if I'm not. I no, I'm not. If I buy a Nexus Four, insecure, if I buy the new latest phone, much. if I buy the new latest phone with the Android Four or whatever on it, uh, this bug's already been fixed in that. It's only on the older only ones. Only if you have the most recent patches. Exactly. The most recent. This one. is. Well, but, you know, the phones that are there are old. But like I say, if I have an insecure phone, I'm not going to use it. And you're not going to be able to bill me for the bandwidth I don't use. So if you push out this patch and make my phone more secure, then I will use more bandwidth that you can charge me for. Right. Okay. And so Dowdle says in the chat room, happy customers are repeat business. That would be true if there were any competition. There are only like four companies yeah. in the country. Really, most people only have a choice between two, and they all employ the exact same practices. So I get mad at AT&T. I go to Verizon, and guess what? Exactly the same thing happens. So that's, a, that's off the table. Whether they've made this choice you know, in a dark room meeting with cigar smoke or not, the fact is they have exactly the same policies that make uh, competition a non-issue. Yeah. Okay. Do you want – so, well, you know, I – I don't necessarily agree with your reasons, but it's one of those. Oh, I don't agree whatever. with them. I'm just saying yeah. that's their reasons. Well, yeah, but again, it's, do you want people to buy phones? Um, or do you like, 
crap, this phone's broke. I've had it for 10 years. Now, now I've got to buy another one. Um, why am I going to be in a rush to upgrade whenever you treat me so crappy? I'm not going to give you my business, uh, when I don't have to. So again, it is customer service and happy, you know, happy, well-fed sheep are content and don't try to break out of the pen. And, so, and Seth, what you just said is entirely true and exactly one eighth of the market will, will think that way. The rest of them will say a new iPhone. I must have, and AT and T is the only one that carries it. I must have. So yeah, it, I would, I would that that were true. Well, and and again, that's one of the things he points out is just because a just because Google releases the patch, that doesn't necessarily mean your phone gets it. Oh, they released a patch for that two months ago. Well, the carrier hasn't released it yet. So just because there is a patch doesn't mean you have it. And that's one of the points he makes in right. the article. So now let my nihilistic uh, attitude continue as we talk about Google versus Microsoft and how they screw us all every day. <laughs> yeah um my google is in no hurry to develop apps for the windows 8 ecosystem they're like well just use chromebook uh you know just use android you don't need that and of course you know microsoft is all too happy to oblige and not put all of their goodness you know office 365 or what have you in anything other than a windows device and so what happens is they are battling to lock in um, their ecosystems. And, and this is a problem that you really didn't have a few years ago. You know, you had your Windows machine that you accessed Google and your Gmail account or whatever. Uh, if you had Apple, you know, you had a Hotmail account or Yahoo, poor Yahoo, they don't have any hardware. So they're just whatever people give them. Um, you know, it was no big deal. But now Google wants you using Android. Apple wants you using Apple. Microsoft wants you using Windows. And so, uh, you know, like take for Chrome, for instance, uh, Chrome is to a large degree standards compliant, but there is a lot of sauce, uh, special sauce baked into Chrome. And we covered a story a while back. Um, I don't remember the exact nature of it, but um, this guy was having issues with Firefox until he downloaded this plugin to allow Firefox to pretend it was Chrome and then it started working um, on some Google stuff. He was some um, Google account. I don't remember the exact thing because that's been a long time ago. But now you're getting these things where vendors are making it hard for you to choose your stuff a la carte. If you're a Gmail person, you know, you've got to have Chromebook or Android. If you're Hotmail or MSN user or Office 365, uh, if you want that to work good, you're going to have to be on Microsoft and you know, and again, today, that's not the case. You still can uh, kind of pick and choose, but it seems to be heading that way. And this article on WP Central, um, the actual title of the article is The Google and Microsoft Lifestyle, A Match Made in Hell. And, uh, you know, so it's like whenever these two big titans are fighting, the first line casualties are us, the end users. So I'll let you kind of peruse this article and just see if see what you think about it. All right. And so let's talk a little bit about Linux, since this is, in fact, a Linux podcast, in name anyway. How about a Linux pen? I'm, I'm lost. I'm confused. Help me. I'm confused, too. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. <laughs> Inventors seek to save art of handwriting with Linux pen. So this is a pen 
that runs an embedded version of Linux. Um, and no, it's not so that the NSA can figure out what you're writing by hand, but it can do things, but I'm, I'm sorry. It was the only joke I could come up with. Um, they're doing things. It, it'll like, it analyzes what you're writing with built-in sensors. Um, and then it can tell you, you know, like you misspelled a word or whatever. So it's kind of like, you know, granted, most everything is typed today or whatever, but if you still want to write by paper, um, you know, and granted, people don't use pen and pen or pencil and paper as much as they used to, but it's, it's still a need. It's still viable. And it's still, you know, in a lot of ways, having a notebook and a pencil in your pocket is a lot easier than having a smartphone that you have to pull out, unlock the screen, pull up some app, make sure you have internet connection, find the right document and then start typing. Whereas you just pull out a pencil, note to self, blah, you're done. Um, now here's anyway, one thing so this, about just reading this. Let me, let me jump in here. One thing about this that I think would make it uh, super cool is that if it would record the motions and then save those as a JPEG later. So you could hand write and then like upload that. That would be awesome. Um, right. So that, that will be the uh, Linux pin 2.0, yes. the cloud version. <laughs> um, but <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, you know, but it's kind of cool. You know, I could see a huge market for this in, um, well, I don't know, maybe in schools, if you had early, a early jack or something on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it'll just, it'll tell you when you misspell a word and it is, apparently has at least some rudimentary, uh, handwriting recognition built into it. So you just get instant feedback on what you're doing rather than turn, you know, you know, you wrote this paper and you use the word then a hundred times when it should have been then. And then, so you taught yourself that it's then when it should have been then. And now you've got to break the habit versus this tells you the first time or something like that. Okay. Just a quick aside. I saw one of the funniest things ever. Um, captures that would prevent the world from using the internet and had the words your Y-O-U-R-E and your Y-O-U-R. Uh, um, and it said blank, the best friend I've ever had. Choose the correct one that goes in this sentence to be able to use this site. And it would stop the internet dead in its tracks. Pretty much. Yep. It would. I, I hate it when I'm typing quickly and I make that mistake. It's like, ah, I know better. And I did it. Gah. Anyway, sorry, I just had to get that. It's interesting. Apparently, uh, the inventor of this pen was talking with his wife, who was a um, a teacher, or at least teaching uh, their son. And my wife said, I wish the pen would give him an electric shock or, or something to make him think about his spelling. And he says, well, I thought an electric shock wasn't a good idea, but a vibration might work. And so that's the genesis of the, the Linux pen. Does it have a name? I don't see a name for it. Learning, oh, uh, Learnstift, which is German for learning pen. Cool. Huh. Look Very for that in a store near you in the next 12, 15 years. Yeah, or never if it doesn't, you know, make it in the wild. And since we're well, talking like about secure, oh, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, it looks like it's a Kickstarter and it's supposed to ship in December. Cool. For pre-ordering. So... Since the it's topic tonight is security, to see how well it works. since the topic tonight is security related, let's talk about how Microsoft handed over the NSA uh, to the NSA access to encrypted messages. That'll make them popular. Let's do that. 
Yeah, you know, we didn't, we talked about it some, but it didn't dominate our podcast the way I thought it would. Uh, Prism and all of the buy-in and really just how, uh, you know, corp- the corporations were kind of just saying, no, no, really, you want this and we'll give it to you. Um, but yeah, so Microsoft kind of gave uh, U.S. intelligence services backdoors to allow them to do everything. And again, these are coming from um, documents provided by Eric Snowden. Um, Microsoft helped the NSA to cir- circumvent its encryption to address concerns that the agency would be unable to intercept web chats on the new Outlook.com portal. And so even if you use Hotmail, you know, you're still using the Outlook.com portal. And they also, um, you know, allowed them to understand potential issues with a feature in Outlook that allows users to create email aliases. And of course, you know, we've talked about Skype before as well. Um, and material collected through Prism is routinely shared with the FBI and CIA with one NSA document describing the program has a team sport. And then it goes on from there. So, you know, yes. Um, and again, I thought it would just be good to mention this, that again, you have the illusion of privacy when you're online. Unfortunately, that's all you have. Um, unless you have some custom built, uh, hardware encryption box on your network going to another custom built hardware encryption box on the other end, anything you say can not necessarily is, but can be looked at by someone else. Um, now, and I- so. I just want to dial dial back the alarmism just a little bit. By the way, I hate this whole thing, but I want to say a couple of things. Points of U.S. law that you may not know. Um, the, the federal government has the power to compel Microsoft to do this. They can, they can give them documents that say you must do this. Um, and so even if they didn't want to, they have to. Secondly, the NSA and the FBI both do not have charters to to uh, work function within the U.S. on U.S. citizens, so theoretically they would only be looking at uh, information from non-U.S. citizens and activities um, across uh, uh, for for non-U.S. citizens. Now the CIA uh, can can work um, pretty much anywhere they want to, uh, but uh, so I'm not saying that this is all happening. I'm just saying that this is the law. The law is that Microsoft can be compelled to, and the law is that the NSA can't spy on Americans. So take that well, as you again, will. Again, it's one, it's one thing from them coming and saying, we have a court order to look at Seth's email versus Microsoft saying, hey, here's the keys to the house. Take a look at whatever you need. Oh, and by the way, just so you know, this key works here and this key works here. And if you want to get in that door, you have to use two keys at the same time. We trust you. Um, which is kind of the, the gist of the article, the way I see it. Uh, and yeah. So by the so, way, you know, I think like all I of said, this sucks. Uh, I just wanted to point out that if we believe in the rule of law and that's a big, if, um, Americans are not being spied on by any American association. Yeah. And we will be covering this in some detail on our sister podcast, <laughs> politics and conspiracy <laughs> theories every day. <laughs> oh it's it is frightening though when you think about the amount of of information you give to people voluntarily or involuntarily um and you know the the to to realize that the people that you might have been trusting with it aren't so trustworthy 
uh, is a frightening thought. On the other hand, what's your other choice? Unplug and go live in a hut in the mountains somewhere. I mean, you, you it's kind of the a factor of the world in which we live. You remember that, um, I think it was a Google's April Fool's Day thing where they talked about there, there was one section of like Wyoming where Google wouldn't look and it was just uh, on the map. It showed the, it showed like Google maps everywhere, but this big Google logo plastered and say, if you want, if you want privacy, you need to sell everything you want and go there. Uh, it just kind of made me think of that cartoon. All right. Um, and yes, Seth, uh, move that, that one to the end to next week. Cause that's a good one, but this was too good a transition to not move into our, um, security stuff while we're talking about security. And oh, by the way, if you'd like to learn about security, a good place to do that is over at the linuxacademy.com where you can learn all sorts of stuff about administering Linux servers, including how to secure one from the NSA. How about that? Uh, I'm sure that's not the title of the course. Anthony, if you're listening, make one of that. That would be a very popular one. How to make sure the NSA can't get into your computer. Um, but the Linux Academy offers step-by-step video courses aimed at helping beginners learn uh, to run Linux servers. So it's not for the advanced people. They do some have some advanced stuff out there. But their purpose is to take you from newbie to Linux administrator. All right, that's a big step, right? Newbie to Linux administrator. It's an audacious, audacious goal. As a friend of mine used to say, a big a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. But that's what they've set out to do. Uh, and in, and to, in order to do that, they give you some tools. They give you your own Linux lab server that uh, is hosted in the cloud and lets you run up to eight different distributions. It gives you PDF study guides of all their reference materials. Over a hundred training vi- videos of of uh, uh, well over a hundred hours of video. Uh, if you if you're not connected well or you travel a lot, uh, you can da- uh, buy a DVD for offline viewing. It gives you the videos and uh, the uh, the Linux lab servers in a VM format uh, and the PDF outlines. Um, or if you like to, to work on an iPad or an iPhone or some mobile device like that, all of their videos are high def and mobile compatible. So uh, you can check all that out. Um, all of this, you can get a 14-day f- trial for a buck. The buck is to make sure that you have the ability to pay for something online. So that you're not wasting their time. I think that's reasonable. So you pay them a dollar, you get two weeks. If you like that, you give them another $5 and you get the whole, no, another $18, excuse me. You get the whole month free, $19 a month or $38 a quarter. Basically buy two months, get one free. Um, and if you go sign up, use the uh, code Linux in the referral field to let them know that uh, that we sent you. Also, uh, just recently, they've included a complete redesign of all the course browsers that allows you to do uh, pick and choose your courses, a la carte learning. You don't have to do this course anymore. Now you can do this video, and the system will track what you've done, track your uh, your progress, and, and let you see where you need help. Then there are quizzes. The quizzes will really let you test your knowledge. You can watch a video, take the quiz on it, see how you did, and the system will track all that, and you can you can look back and say, okay, this I've got. I don't have to spend any more time on this. This I need some help with. I didn't do well in those tests, and you can go back and check all that. All of this self-paced learning uh, of high-quality content for 19 bucks a month. Just do it. But why are you even still listening to the show? Pause the show, go to linuxacademy.com, sign up, and start learning about Linux. Yeah, we'll wait. Go on. We don't mind. Go pause. Yeah, take care of it. Come back. All right, welcome back. Are you back yet? Uh, 
<laughs> we hope you enjoyed your time there at linuxacademy.com, as I know that our very own GUI kid enjoys his time there. Yeah, I uh, I still have my membership. I still go in there from time to time. I really like it. it has a way, I mean, I was going to get real heavily into it before I got my current job but um since my current job is pretty much 100 percent windows i have really slowed down my pace on the linux academy but i still keep it and still look in there and am slowly um, amassing my linux knowledge base and slow is the way to do it frankly it's the way to make sure that you've you've actually learned stuff right That's right all right, so now we'll move on to our listener feedback. We don't have much because I used it all up last week for our listener feedback episode, but we do have a couple of uh, emails from listeners, one of which sparked the topic of the show. Uh, we'll start with Tony, who offers in his own words, random thoughts and a compliment. Hey guys, just got done listening to episode 102. Congrats on your podcast being nominated. And that's a reference to that show. You can go back and listen to it. He says, don't change a thing. Listening to your podcast reminds me of being at work in a good way. We start off with a cup of coffee and do some BSing. Then we talk about work stuff. Then we do some more BSing. Then more work stuff. Kind of like your podcast. Talk about some non-Linux stuff. Then some Linux stuff. I'm still waiting for the compliment. I agree that the name of the show may be a bit misleading. Maybe change it to Linux and stuff. Uh, but a rose by any other name is still a rose. There are only two entertainment sources I look forward to on a regular basis. The Walking Dead and your podcast. There's the compliment right there. That's awesome. Wow. That's high praise. So his week is not complete without two things. The Walking Dead and Everyday Linux. He says, keep wow. it up. On a side note, a reference to your episode about SSDs. I recently put in an SSD and an Acer netbook with a gig of RAM running Lubuntu. I love Ubuntu. Why don't you show more love for Ubuntu instead of Mint? We've mentioned it a few times. Chill out. It's okay. Yeah, I, I like LXDE. <laughs> it may be my imagination, but I believe I saw a significant increase in speed and responsiveness after doing this. I'm sure it's not your imagination. It probably flies now, even in a netbook. Um, looking forward to the next episode. Faken. Now that's funny. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> thanks for your comments there, Tony. We appreciate it. Um, all right, moving right along, Tim asks a question about SE Linux. <sighs> and that sent us down the rabbit hole. Here we go. I was given the yeah, option to run either Windows or whatever Linux distro I wanted to run. The boss doesn't care as long as it gets the job done. Anyway, I ran Ubuntu for a while and it was okay. Some stability issues when running a few application combinations, etc. But overall, okay. Just for the sake of trying something else, I installed Fedora 18. I recently upgraded to Ford, uh, Fedora 19. Just cause. Anyway, my real issue when I went to Fedora uh, with all its security goodness, I kept getting SE Linux logs complaining about Google Chrome. I investigated this log and found that it's a known harmless bug and have been ignoring it. I would have thought there'd be it would have been addressed by now, but honestly, I haven't spent too much time thinking about it since the first investigation. But it did make me realize that I have no real knowledge of the whole SE Linux thing. You and everybody else. Uh, recently no ran into a problem running another app and found it was an SE Linux blocking issue. Accessing SCTP socket from a process started as a service. Now to the question slash suggestion. Found a couple of solutions to the issue, but I think it might be a good segment for you guys to do a segment on SE Linux. What is it? Why is it? How do you take advantage of it? And how do you get around it? 
how it works with the standard Linux permissions. Maybe have the command line godfather expound on the various command line interface tools for managing and querying policies and settings. Thanks for your podcast. Some good content, Tim. I'm going to, maybe he said some good content, but I read that as some good content. <laughs> Thanks, Tim, for your, your uh, thing. And, and I have uh, dabbled with SE Linux a little bit. I, I pitched the idea out to the guys and said, what do you know about it? And they said, oh. So <laughs> uh, we decided we would dig into the, the internets and do some casual research. In other words, we read the Wikipedia entry and we're ready to do a show on it. So, Something like that. Wait, there's a Wikipedia entry? <laughs> oh, Seth. Oh, Seth. I, I am going to bring something up really quick that Doddle points out. There is a good YouTube video called SC Linux for Mere Mortals over on YouTube. It's done by Thomas Cameron, and it does a good job referencing a lot of it. And probably since he's kind of more of a guru on SC Linux than we are, it's probably a good place to stop after you listen to us. All right. So just to set your expectation, uh, we could not, in a half hour's time, tell you anything really useful about SC Linux. It's that complicated. So we're going to yeah. give you, uh, we're going to answer your questions, all right? What is it? Why is it? And how can you get the most out of it? Uh, and, and we're going to try to answer those questions and go a little bit about it. And uh, so I'm just going to start in here, guys. Jump in whenever you have something interesting to say or something non-interesting. Ooh, I have something. All I'll right. get my, my two bits, Puppies. literally. Well, I might get some change back on these. But um, oh, we talked the story about... and. SE Linux came about because of the NSA's involvement with the Linux community. They liked the Linux OS. They looked at it and they kind of used it and giving back to the community, they gave what was uh, SE Linux. And of course, it's since been refined and stuff, but it is, uh, what is it? Security edition Linux. Security so it is enhanced. kind of a way to lock it down and make it more secure, uh, which kind of, you know, fit into their needs being the super secret spy organization that they are. So that's them using the open source product and giving back to the community as well. Go guys. All right. Those were my first couple of bullet points actually there, Seth. Uh, SE Linux is, it stands for it's security enhanced Linux and it's an, it's a, it's an addition to the kernel. It's not, it's not directly the kernel, but it's patched into the kernel. It's kind of sort of a kernel level hook. Uh, almost like a driver uh, would be, uh, and it's an addition to the kernel. It's a it's sort of a shim between the OS and the file system. So it sits uh, uh, just under the kernel and just above the file system. And again, I said it was originally created by the NSA. They needed they wanted to use Linux, but they weren't happy with the just uh, read write execute permissions uh, in uh, Linux, and they wanted something a little better. They partnered with Red Hat. Uh, the Red Hat guys worked with the NSA, and so now uh, everything you do on your computer uh, is being spied on. Uh, think no, seriously, I, I doubt that's the case. But uh, the NSA was, in fact, the NSA, by the way, National Security Advisory, not advisory, at administration, uh, National Security Administration, uh, in case you didn't know that. Um, so think of, of uh, SE Linux if you're a Windows user, as user access control, but on steroids and after having Crack. swallowed um, a <laughs> mutated donut and living and inside of a, a volcano. I mean, it's a big monster beast, but it's loosely based. No, that's not even the right way to put it. It's loosely relatable to 
uh, Active Directory and Group Policy and Windows Access Control. So it allows the administrator to find a file level access uh, for both users and applications. So that's essentially what SE Linux does. It's a firewall for the file system. It defines who can can do what to a file. Uh, for example, or a service. Uh, or right. So uh, well, that's the who. It's it's all about files. So uh, for example, a user Bob might have full access to his home directory, but the applications that Bob runs can't access where he stores his SSH keys. For example. So even though Bob's running them, they're not Bob. So it makes a distinction between Bob and the applications that Bob runs and the system applications that Bob interacts with. So the the who can be any number of things. It can be any process. It can be any spawn of a process. It's crazy. Um, And it gives you uh, precise control all the way down to a single attribute. For example, uh, a user might be able to read, write, delete, change a file, but an application can only append to it without being able to read it or write over something. Yeah, it's uh, so it's, it takes the whole read, write, execute thing a million degrees farther and breaks down every possible attribute from reading, from scanning. To, do you know it's there? Uh, do you know it's there and can read it? Do you know it's there and can read it and can edit it? Uh, do you know it's there and can read it and can add to it? Do you know it's there and can read it and can can add to it and delete it? Any one of those things, you take your pick. Or move it. Or move it, there you go, which is essentially copying and, and deleting. Um, so it, it's super complicated um, if I haven't done a good way, if I haven't done a good job of describing that. It's incredibly complicated, but it's also incredibly powerful. Again, it is uh, all about security enhancement. So, um, And it's been refined very well to the point where you don't even know it's running unless it kicks an air at you. Well, let's talk about that a little later on. Um, the uh, uh, well, we, yeah, we'll talk about. I've got it in my notes there. We'll talk about that. So, yep. um, where is SE Linux available? It's built into Red Hat and Red Hat derivatives. So Fedora, CentOS, uh, and those that ilk. It's built right in because the Red Hat guys uh, were the ones who first built it. It's been ported to Debian and Debian derivatives. So Ubuntu, Mint, Ubuntu, all those guys. Um, but it doesn't come installed. You can just go get it. And then there are similar similar utilities that aren't exactly SE Linux, because it's not Linux, available for BSD and Solaris. Uh, So the the model, once it was out there, was adapted by other people. So you can get the protection offered by SE Linux on just about any X operating system. Um, How does it work? Danger. Here be dragons. This is the part of the map that has no islands and no charts on it, just a picture of a sea serpent. It's uncharted. Here be dragons. Um, It's all managed by policies. So if you're a Windows user, that word is familiar to you. If you're a Windows administrator, that word is familiar to you. So all systems with SE Linux installed by default have a reference policy, a master reference policy that the people who design that OS, let's say Fedora, um, the Fedora team have uh hammered on this reference policy and and customize it specifically for fedora and that's why like chris says if things are working well you don't know it's there however his experience is not my experience i always know it's there and always in a bad way uh but uh, to be fair i haven't for for a while my default uh choice for se linux is turn it off uh so maybe it's come a long way and i just don't know because i always turn it off 
So if you're installing it on, say, Ubuntu yourself, you don't have the benefit of the Fedora reference policy. It won't help you. It's a whole different architecture, a whole different thing. Yep. So you can go online to a reference policy repository and download, hopefully, an Ubuntu reference policy. Or if you're just super geek, you can dig in with, with um, gedit. No, you wouldn't use gedit. You'd use Vi or Vim and, and write your own. You'd go to town. Chris would, anyway. Yep. And seven to yeah. 18 months later, you would be finished writing your reference policy for SE Linux. Uh, and and all and then you might uh, ready to come out, um, uh, might be ready to come out and actually do something. So, uh, the policies are are complex and comprehensive. They have to be right because it control it has all that control of all that stuff. So they have to be really massive because the default behavior, once you flip on SE Linux, the default behavior system wide is no access. So if I haven't gone in and specifically allowed this process access to this attribute of this file, you don't get anything. So that's why they have to be super comprehensive. You have to cover pretty much anything that you could ever possibly do in the machine, in your reference policy. Are you scared yet? I am. (laughs) And so if you break your, your SE Linux policy, you break your machine. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Now, (laughs) <laughs> Having said all of that, if you get it working and if it's all configured nicely and your reference policy is designed well, it makes your your computer super super secure. There's just almost I'm not you know I always use almosts and 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 always and never always. There's almost never any way um to hack a system with a properly installed SE Linux because everything is defined. So you can't you can't trust a buffer overrun to write data into memory and you can't you can't get some process that spawns off over here and masquerades as the the system just doesn't let you do that. It's security enhanced Linux. So if it's running and it's running well yeah. and it's really locked down if it's NSA approved, that machine is about as secure as as humans can make a machine. Yeah. All right, taking a little pause and there. Breath. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. You know, that's it's it's hard to describe what SE Linux is because it's such it's so high level of geek. You know, that's like the kernel writers, the people that that bait on the kernel all the time. They do things that most normal mortals could not even comprehend. So SE Linux is nice though they at least the fedora people have have written up a gui so that way you can tinker with those policies when you get those errors yes because the command line version is is a little is just as hard but the sad thing is (laughs) a lot of the commands when you run the gui they tell you to run this in the terminal in order to get it to fix right so like if you're in fedora and you want to run use wine to run an application it gives you a string that says, type this into your terminal to create the policy, then type this into the com- into the terminal as root in order to activate the policy, so then you you don't get those error messages. All this from a GUI. Uh, now, there, yeah. there, that GUI um, that's available isn't built into Fedora. You have to go get it. So you have to know it's there. You have to know you want it. You have to know what it's called. You have to go install it. Uh, there is a GUI also available for the Ubuntu 
uh, strain, uh, but it's largely been abandoned. It's out there, and last anybody worked on it, it worked, but it's a few versions out now, and you know it's not necessarily trustworthy. Um, right. The I will say one more thing though about the Fedora guys. They did make something called the SE Linux Troubleshooter that is a little bit, little more um, user friendly than the than this than most of the stuff that's uh, in the terminal driven. But they again, that's pointing you. It'll point you back to the terminal to run commands. So when the SE Troubleshooter does run off, you need to make sure that you're reading it right and maybe ask in the Fedora um, IRC room to make sure that you're doing this correctly. So. You have this tool, it's called SE Troubleshoot, and it's a GUI utility, it's actually not a GUI utility, but it's a utility that allows you to to scan your logs and, and spit out uh, almost human-readable information. But it's not installed by default! Good grief! On the, li- on the live disks. The live disks, is, it's not installed by default, but if you install by DVD or the net install, it comes built in. Well, according to Fedora's SE Linux page, it's not installed by default. Um, that's what I'm going. Well, SE by. Troubleshoot is the SE Troubleshoot is, but the other the GUI, the whole GUI thing is not. Well, then Fedora needs to update their documentation because uh, that's what I was going by. So uh, we come to the big question: who should you who should use it? Well, of course, the makers of SE Linux, the NSA and Red Hat and the guys who develop it, say everybody should use it for desktops and laptops and servers alike. Me, I say that everyday Linux users should run screaming. Run for the hills. Just turn it off. You don't need it. If you manage a server that you expect to be under attack, sure, man up and do it. But you're not the everyday Linux user. Um. So here's the thing about most SE Linux failures. You, they, you, you don't get an alert. You, you might get an alert sometimes, but not very often. Usually it's a silent fail. So you're, you're trying to save a file on your brand new four terabyte hard drive and you'll get a message like the disk is full or a message like, you know, this file doesn't exist, even though you can pull it up in the, the the file browser and look at it that's a different process it can see it but the thing that you're trying to do can't see it and so then you have to go spelunking through the logs to figure out what's going on and then you see that it's an se linux error then you have to run another utility to help you figure out the best way to resolve that se linux error i'm being a little bit dramatic but honestly just a little bit yeah, the, the only thing that kind of kicked me the last on Fedora when I started running that the newest one is for some reason when I when I did my clean install one of the utilities you need to activate policies wasn't installed and is not listed in any of the distros in any of the depo- repositories. So with some help from the Fedora guy, some of the Fedora people in the the IRC room, they said, "Well, you need to run this command with yum in order to install the pa- that audit to allow package." That was the name of the program. Why it's not installed by default, I don't understand. Because without it, SE Linux is, you know, you can't manage it without it. So I don't understand that one personally. But uh, yeah, it, it's kind of a pain in the butt if you don't need the security level. So there, that's a, a super quick overview. 
All right, so don't don't expect this to have been uh, expert level at all. But we answered the questions: What is it, and and how can you use it? Well, the, you can use it by studying and learning. I looked at the syntax for uh, making SE Linux policies, and it wasn't really like anything I've seen before. It wasn't quite Bash scripting. It wasn't quite XML. It was it was SE Linux. It was its own thing. Um, yes, so it's its own it's its own beast. So you have to learn the syntax. You have to learn the the language of it and figure out how to do it. Then you have to, you know, uh, as Dowdle in the chat room is pointing out, there's Boolean logic where you can say this and this or that, um, which you know that's that's cuts wide swaths. You know that's uh, that's swatting a fly with a sledgehammer and it works. It does the job. But if you really want to learn and use SE Linux to to its best, it's it's like learning. You know how to program a, a PIX firewall. You just you, there's no real help. You just got to do it. You got to dig in there and bring your whole system down uh, a couple of times to learn how to do it. So I don't recommend doing that on your production server. Uh, it's certainly worthwhile to do if you're uh, an admin, if that's your your game, if you really need a hardened server. But I think for just just the the guy who throws Linux on a laptop. And watches Netflix. Oh wait, never mind. Just the guy who throws Linux on a Netflix and browses the web. Um, you're uh, you're not going to need that. And it's just it's it introduces the potential for breakage. Now, like Chris said, he doesn't notice it most of the time. He turns it on at install, and it works, and that's good. Okay, I, I believe you, Chris. That hasn't been my experience, but I'll trust you that that's been your experience. But yeah, the my only point. Times I've ever had it. I was gonna say, Mike. The only time I've ever had a flare-up from SE Linux was the Google Chrome bug, but I don't use Chrome anymore, so that doesn't bother me. And Wine, but I use Wine so infrequently anymore that it's not in my way either. So for me, I haven't had any issues with SE Linux. But my point is, why introduce the possibility for failure when there's no upside? And and for daily use, there is no upside. You're not getting hacked. You're not the NSA. You're you don't have um, you know evil workers from within and without trying to hack your system. The odds are you run it wide open with a pretty easy password, and and you know you you tell your kids and your grandma go ahead do what you need to do. That's you know that's most likely the way you run your laptop or your or your desktop. You know it's not it's not something where you need a hardened thing. So why introduce one more step, one more possibility of failure. And please, for the love of God, don't ever put this on your aunt's machine or your grandmother's machine because you think it'll keep her safer. No, don't do that. Yeah, it, it, Technically, you will keep her safer, yes, but you also keep her safer from herself and from actually using the computer. Uh, I've seen well-intentioned guys you know, who were educated and intelligent and knew how to use this thing set it up on somebody else's computer, turn SE Linux on, and then, you know, not only are you already their tech support, but you've included, included your own burden because the odds are the that at some point in the life of that computing platform, SE Linux is going to jump up and bite you, and you're going to spend extra time trying to figure out what it is, and through that whole time, you really didn't gain anything out of it. Can you tell I'm a little negative on it? I really am. It's good for what it is, but don't use it for what it isn't. It was developed by the NSA. Let them use it. You don't need it. 
rebuttals and and arguments insert here yeah well i've I've said my piece i i use it on my rigs just for the simple fact that i don't ever run into a problem with it so you know your mileage will will vary so i would say if you're a distro hopper and you're playing around and you're you're testing things use it see if it if it bothers you you know, do a 30-day challenge and see if it if the SE Linux actually bites you. Chances are, if you're not a Chrome user in Fedora, you won't see it. I mean, in, on Firefox, I've been running Fedora forever, and I think I have saw, well, what was it, Fedora 10 or something? Firefox had a weird hiccup, but it was up. It was a Firefox issue, not an SE Linux, because Firefox tried to do something that it wasn't supposed to do. No, it was supposed to. It was trying to send up a file because of uh, uh, the where it's asking for the the crash log, but SE Linux didn't have a policy saying that it could do that. So then I edited the policy and said it could, and then there was no more issues. And then uh, since then, they've updated the policy so it doesn't happen anymore. So your mileage will vary. Try it. See if you actually feel it, and. Maybe uh, send us a, an email if you've actually feel SE Linux when you're running Fedora. I will say one thing that if you're worried about overhead or you know having one other thing running or stability, um, the SE Linux runs fine. You will never notice any kind of performance hit for turning it on. Uh, you're not even on you know a CPU usage graph. It's just it's just a non-issue because it works so low level, uh, so at the kernel. Um, you know, it's it's practically running in the hardware at that point. Uh, it's super fast. It's super stable. It's super secure. It's 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 NSA for crying out loud. Uh, they use it in their production environment, so it's something that's going to have to work really well um, every time. So, having said all of my misgivings about it, the system does what it's designed to do really, really well. My contention is that. It's what it's designed to do, and the needs of the average home user are at odds with each other. Yeah. But if I would say if you're a road warrior, someone who's jumping into public access points a lot, it wouldn't hurt to have another layer of protection because you never know. But I also go in, the first thing I do when I fire up a Windows 7 machine is turn off user access control. So I, I don't want any of that stuff getting in my way. So you know, I'm I'm that guy. I, I I I will I will fess up to that. Yeah, and see, like when I had a Vista machine, I always turned off the user access control. But with my Windows Seven, I leave it on, and it's a lot better. And so I think the SE Linux is a lot better uh, now than whenever it um, whenever it first came out. And if you're just a home user, you know, and you're behind your router. Uh, I don't really see a big use for it, but like Chris said, if, if you're someone who travels and you are a, uh, a tinfoil advisor guy, kind of like me, maybe watch that video, uh, just so you kind of would be aware of some of the things that would come, but you know, maybe play around with it and see if it's what you want because an additional layer of security, um, is never a bad thing, but sometimes it is too much of a hassle. So it's just, you know, how much do you want to be hassled by your computer to remind you when you do stupid stuff? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my issues with it would be much lessened if it were more obvious 
the the warnings are obtuse the the configuration is obscure um and it's it's expert level it's designed to be used by expert level users again this these are all fine things but i i just don't think non-experts should have it turned on because it's designed for expert users so if it were clear and if it had you know uh nice pointy clicky buttons and easy to control uh gui interfaces and clear intelligible messages that said here's what's going on and gives you some information and saying here are your options on how to fix it i would feel much better about it but it's it's an uber geek thing designed by uber geeks designed for uber geeks and i just don't think it's ready for prime time yeah it's kind of like it's a lot like the registry in a windows machine at least you know before like uh, eight totally got rid of it and seven kind of messed with it if you know what you're doing you can go into the registry and you can figure all, all kinds of things for your computer but for the most time uh, you really don't need to and if you don't know what you're doing you'll cause more harm than good and just stay away from it and find somebody who wrote a little utility to do that specific thing so liking it to local group policy or security policy or the registry on a windows machine kind of points you in the right direction it, it is there and you can do a lot but it's one of those things that you can easily muck up as well so i would agree with you um a large part that it's kind of for experts and you know and so all of the like bandana guys and gray beards are just like they're they're, they're cussing us up and down because we would you know we're we're trading on their holy turf but for the everyday person uh you know it, it's good to know about and if you want to increase your linux knowledge download it and play around with it but it's probably overkill and for the record, so you don't think I'm down on SE Linux in particular, I don't agree with uh, group policy in a home setting either. You don't need it. There's no purpose for it. It can only cause harm in a home environment. And I've, you know, I'm comfortable with Active Directory, group policy, and, and those sort of things. I've, I've spent uh, you know, the better part of two decades in that world, but I would still caution a, a home user not to use it. So the SE Linux is like taking the full-on group policy module out of Windows Server, throwing it on your home laptop, and expecting the average user to know how to use it. I just don't think there's any place for it there. So there you go. There you go. There you go. So it's not about SE Linux. It's about what it does. And I don't think it has any place in the home. Not yet. I didn't intend for this show to be pontificating. I really thought it'd be cut and dried, techn uh, technical, this is what happens. And then the chat room got me all riled up, telling me that I'm evil <laughs> for not liking it. Fine. I'm, yeah. I'll wear that mantra. I'll be evil. But the fact is, I don't like it, and I don't think it serves a useful purpose for the everyday Linux user, and I think it could only cause harm. So turn it off and move on with your life. Anybody got a tip okay. for us this week? How about a command line tip? I do have a command line tip this week, but I don't know how well it's going to come across because it is kind of a heavy, geeky one. But I was asked a couple of weeks ago about how, what the difference is between hard and soft links. And I really didn't know how to explain it clearly enough for a podcast. So I found a good link um, that, li that lists it out better than I could even imagine to describe it out. 
and it, he goes through um, on a Linux. It, these are Linux um, commands. So Windows guys, sorry, you have to go find your own tutorials. But basically, these are like shortcuts. That would be the you know a, a soft link would be like, would be a would be like a Windows shortcut where it has a little shortcut symbol and it links you to the file itself. A hard link is actually more like. Um, it's hard to find a parallel that? in the Windows world. Yeah, <laughs> but well, now that Windows seven and eight, you can here's you here's a hard have link. The ability. A hard link is a portal. You walk through one hole, you, you come go. out the other, and you never know the difference. That's right. Yeah, like the game portal. That would be a good way of describing portal. Um, and then there's also symbolic links for those that are really wanting to know. But the the article does a great job of describing what links are in how the operating system uses them and how to use them for yourself. So I'll, it's in the show notes. Um, we'll put it over into the, uh, the chat room if someone will copy and paste it for me. And then it's, gr- you know, one of the things I love about um, hard links in general is the fact that I can use my pigeon configs and all my other um, config files. I can throw it into Dropbox and hard link to drop my Dropbox file so every computer has my configuration files, no matter where I'm at. Yeah, it makes you know if I when I blow machines off, if I forgot to back up the home directory, which happens occasionally, I don't have to redo all my passwords for Pigeon because I have them hard linked, which is yeah, nice. I, I never thought of that analogy till just now, but that really is the perfect analogy. The portal gun from the game Portal is is yep. a hard link. You you've got your your blue gun and your red gun or blue hole and your red hole in and one is the other. There's no difference. Yeah. There's no you step in here and you are there. So that's the way a hard link does. It's not a shortcut. It's not a reference to something else. As far as the system is concerned, you are there. The space in between and the different uh, angles or whatever just doesn't exist. So if you want to portal your your hard drive from one section to another, like for Pigeon, for example, he can set that up on Dropbox. Um, and wherever he goes, his computer doesn't know the difference. It thinks it's here, but it's actually being portaled over to there. It never knows the difference. And, and it, once you get the hang of it and figure out how to use it, you'll find all kinds of uses for it. And, you know, yeah, and, and you'll find yourself using hard, you know, why would you ever use a shortcut again when you can use a hard link? It makes so much more sense. Um, like if you've ever tried to open a file, that's a shortcut. Like, so you've got a shortcut to a file. And you right click and you say open as and it says shortcut something what dot lnk. No, I didn't want that. I wanted the file. A hard link would do that. You would it would be like having the same and and the beauty of it is you can have multiple hard links to a similar same location. So you can have your file my grocery list dot text on every level of your home directory. It's one file and whatever you click, it's always there. You know if you wanted to do that everywhere you go, you could have that link there. Um, and once you get the the hang of it, it, it it's really powerful. It's like being able to replicate a file. You can have it all over the place, uh, but the computer never knows it's, knows the difference. Yeah, it's a great set of tools. Um, the the whole thing about hard linking, soft link. Once I got out of soft linking everything and started hard linking, and it was like, oh my god, why why have I been changing? Why have I been doing this stupid soft link for the entire time I've ever done computering? So yes. Hard links for the win, but soft so links you've done do have computering? valid too. You've done computering. Now I just wish there were a way to hard link uh, Samba shares. 
It's it's ridiculous to me that in 2013, when I'm accessing a Samba share, I have to copy the file over, edit it, and copy it back. Why in the world? What's what's the deal with that? Yeah, I don't understand we, we should that one be, either. We should be so much better than that. All right, Seth. What's your thing this week? I, I don't even know what to call it anymore. What is the Seth thing this week? Man, I stumbled across this site, and... Um, if you are my age, um, I'm I'm 41. So if you are in that ballpark, and you remember He-Man, the original He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, before She-Ra, the Princess of Power, <laughs> um, you know, and nice. like I was a kid when that was on, and so I thought that was a gr- I thought that was great animation until I saw it when they released the DVDs, and I was like, I used to watch that yes. garbage. <laughs> but what was anyway, the cat's you know, name? He-Man. Do you remember? I'm I'm sorry. What was the cat's name? Do you remember the purple cat? tiger thing? Yeah, yeah. I I don't I don't remember. Um, but anyway, this is a it. website that will take you back to He-Man. It requires sound, so if you don't have sound, uh, don't click this link. But um, when you do have sound, just click the link, baby, and let it play, and they will be in the and show notes. Um, cr- cringer was the the other one and he became battle cat cringer because he was scared of everything anyway i would definitely say though pronounce your dot com. so uh so yeah i don't have uh the option to do that right now because i'm i'm doing this thing called a podcast but i will definitely check this out because uh i guess i'm guessing he's not saying by the power of gray skull no no, he's not. Yeah, no, he's not. Uh, <laughs> it's. I hope you like it. Um, it was just funny when I saw it, and I I wanted to share because I love I love the element Op Faithful, and I hope you love me, but not in that weird kind of way. So, <laughs> I think Seth, your section of the show is all about that weird kind of way. <laughs> uh, probably. Um, oh, here you go. Let me. Uh, here you go, Dowdle. Let me uh, throw that in there now. So for those of you who want to see this uh, live, there you go. Heyayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayay
That's what I'm calling it the hotline from now on. Uh, so you can oh. call 559-I-AM-OPIE anywhere in the U.S. and Canada. I think maybe Mexico, too. Uh, and you can uh, leave us a voicemail there, and we will put it on the show. Or if you're outside the U.S., you can just send me a file. Send me an Og Vorbis file, and I'll, I'll, we'll put that on there. Uh, there so, uh, also there's the forums there. Don't forget that. Check it out. The, the conversation often lives on after the show in the forums. And I say often, uh, when I say often, I'm actually lying. There's not a lot of activity in the forums, but I'm trying to create activity in the forums. So I use words like often so that you make you, it'll make you feel like you want to be part of it too much fourth wall yes. breaking. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, we use right. often in the uh, advertising sense. Yes. So we're totally not lying. <laughs> so um there you go that's the show we're so glad you were here with us and and like i said i got no more uh listener feedback so if next week's show is going to have a listener feedback section that's up to you yeah you the one with the donut and the coffee i'm talking to you it's up to you put on some pants first <laughs> wipe the cheetos dust off your chest and go go over to elementopi.com and leave us some feedback that we can put in the show um, Chris, there Seth, as go. always, it's been a true pleasure. Chat room, people listening live. Um, we're always happy to have you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for making this show awesome because it's you who make the show awesome. And, uh, that's right. And we couldn't do it without you. Well, we could, but nobody would care because there'd be nobody listening and it would just be the three of us ranting about stuff. And that's no fun. We need an audience to legitimize our ranting. That's right. So <laughs> thanks everybody. That's it. That ends this episode of Everyday Next.